Creston in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak. I'm filling in for Al today. And just like he always does, we're going to be talking about things that matter most on this of Friday, October 13th, 2023. we got a great show lined up for you today. I'm looking forward to each of the guests. We're going to start us things off with uh, Dr. Anthony Lillis talking about St. Teresa of Avila. Coming up this Sunday is her feast day, and we're going to be talking about contemplation, mystical contemplation, and what it looks like to be drawn into that burning heart of Jesus and being transformed by it. Then we'll move on to Father Ken Garassi talking about spiritual warfare and the divine mercy and how the chaplet of divine mercy in a particular way is a weapon that we have in our, you know, not in our tool case, I mix metaphors there, our weapon in our sheath to pull out a sword to wield as we fight the forces of the evil one and ultimately win the race and finish the race and enter into heaven. And then in the second hour, we'll be unpacking the Sunday's gospel with Peggy Stanton. There's a dangerous but beautiful line where Jesus is giving the parable and he ends it with, many are invited, but few are chosen. How are we to understand that? What does that mean for us? We're going to talk about it with Peggy Stanton. And then finally, we're going to close on looking at the things and the going-ons in Rome right now. The Synod on Synodality is happening, and there are lots of issues that are making news, particularly some of the topics that are being discussed, whether it's some of the LGBTQ inclusion stuff, the possibility of opening the diaconate to women, all sorts of different things are on the agenda. How do we make sense of it? What does it matter to us? How should we think about it moving forward? We have Matthew Bunsen here to give us an update and help us understand it. So that's the show today. Once again, I'm Pete Burak filling in for Al. We're going to be talking about these different things and hopefully in light of just filled with the power of the Holy Spirit as we continue to pray for peace around the world, especially in Israel, our brothers and sisters who are under attack and who are, are struggling. We pray for them now. So let's hear about more about the news with Dan McGraw. Thank you, Pete, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, October 13th. Today is the Feast of St. Edward the Confessor. And today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. Israeli commando teams are conducting searches for weapons and hostages inside Gaza. The Israeli Defense Forces confirmed the action today ahead of an expected major ground assault involving thousands of troops and tanks. Israel has ordered one million civilians to leave northern Gaza to stay out of harm's way. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is in Qatar to discuss the Israel-Hamas conflict with the country's Prime Minister. 
The Latin Catholic Patriarch of Jerusalem has called for a day of prayer and fasting on Tuesday, October 17th, for peace and reconciliation in the Holy Land. In a statement earlier this week, he urged Catholics to organize times of prayer with Eucharistic adoration and recitation of the Rosary. The Cardinal, who serves as the head of the Latin Catholics in Israel, Palestine, Jordan, and Cyprus, said that we cannot let death and its sting be the only word we hear. In a statement today, Cardinal Pietro Parolin, the Vatican's Secretary of State, condemned the Hamas attacks and said the Holy See is ready to help mediate a peace agreement. Georgia Representative Austin Scott is jumping to the race for Speaker of the House. Scott's entry today makes him the only confirmed Republican candidate besides Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan at this time. Republicans are currently meeting to decide on a new nominee after Majority Leader Steve Scalise pulled out of the race Thursday night. And a solar eclipse will be visible across the country Saturday morning. People in nine states will also have the chance to see a rare ring of fire. A ring of fire phenomenon is when the moon almost covers the sun completely. From the Ave Maria Radio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak, filling in for Al today. On Sunday, we will celebrate the feast of the great doctor of the church, St. Teresa of Avila. We're going to learn more about her with our next guest, Anthony Lillis. Dr. Anthony Lillis is the chief academic officer at the Avila Institute. He also serves as associate professor, admissions director, and academic advisor to the academic dean of St. John's Seminary and has been appointed as the academic dean of St. Patrick's Seminary and University in Menlo Park. His expertise is in the spiritual doctrine of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity and the Carmelite doctors of the Church, St. Teresa of Avila, who we're talking about today, St. John of the Cross, and St. Therese of the Sioux. He's the author of 30 Days with Teresa of Avila and other books. You can follow along with what he's doing and what he's writing at his blog, beginningtopray.blogspot.com. Dr. Anthony Lillis, welcome to Crest in the Afternoon. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Pete. No, this is exciting. I'm I'm uh, I'm looking forward to diving in uh, and learning more about Saint Teresa of Avila and how her understanding of the spiritual life can impact us today. And we're so we want to get into that. But first, can you just give us a general understanding of who this incredible saint was and kind of the 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 broad brushstrokes of her life? Sure. She um, she's the the foundress of a. Um, uh, reform, or more than a reform, a, uh, a, a complete renewal of the Carmelite life. Uh, and so she, called the Discalced Carmelites, and they uh, have convents all over the world, they're cloistered, and uh, she uh, started uh, first with cloistered religious, and then uh, she met John of the Cross, and uh, together they started up uh, uh, the uh, male group of the Discalced uh, 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 Carmelites. Discalced means they don't uh, they don't wear shoes, and um, and that was a kind of a return to a more radical poverty, a greater simplicity of life, a life focused on the practice of contemplative prayer, and um, and so successful was she that the Carmelite 
uh, convent that she came from, the Incarnation, asked her to come back. So she founded the Discalced Carmelites, but the the o- o- order of um, uh, Our Lady, not Carmel, the 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 um, the O Carms, invited her to come back to her monastery and to reform them. So she's the foundress of the Discalced Car- Carmelites and the reformer of the uh, the uh, o- order of the Carmelites. The, um, uh, these two Carmelite families, we still have them here today, uh, and uh, and with convents around the world, with priests around the world. And uh, in the 16th century, she was given a gift of prayer and leadership uh, that helped uh, uh, reform the Church. And as a result, the Carmelite family that we have today uh, has produced some of uh, uh, the most powerful and most stunning uh, doctors of the Church that that, uh, that has influenced uh, the way we pray, and uh, uh, it's a gift uh, to be able to talk about them. It's what I, I get to do for a living. Uh, whenever someone is able to tap into their spiritual riches, I've always noticed their prayer life just explodes. Yeah, and one of the things that clearly characterized her mission from the Lord and her writings and her lasting influence in the Church, and we're talking about 500 years of impact here from Teresa of Avila, was this, she was a, a pioneer, as you say, of, of the renewal of contemplative prayer. Uh, and so let's break that down a little bit as to how are we as Catholics supposed to understand contemplative prayer? And I wonder if you could frame it within the context of one of her books was The Way of Perfection, which she meditates on the Lord's Prayer, which of course is the prayer Jesus himself taught his disciples to pray, his apostles to pray, when they asked to be taught to pray. You know, they said, please teach us to pray. And so this was the prayer he taught them. So something about that prayer, I mean, there's lots of things about that prayer that we should take notice of, because it's the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. But how... Help us understand how she understood contemplative prayer and the connection with the Our Father. Sure. Uh, for her, the Our Father, because the Lord taught it, and she was completely convinced it, it contained in itself the highest, most perfect of all prayers. And so only by entering into the prayer revealed to us by Jesus, the prayer that he commanded us to say, only by entering into that could we fully uh, uh, explore uh, the gift of contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer, she calls it oración mental, sometimes we call it mental prayer. For her, this kind of prayer is a conversation of um, of the soul with the Lord. It's, it's a, a conversation where we pay attention to His um, uh, uh, grandeur and presence, uh, sovereignty over everything, and his great, immense, inexhaustible love for us all at the same time. And um, and we pay attention to who we are uh, as unworthy, uh, um, having merited uh, by no means the ability to stand before him, but nevertheless being called to stand before him in prayer. And, and then finally, um, uh, as she goes into the words of the Lord's Prayer, uh, we we attend to in this mental prayer, this contemplative prayer, the words that we say, and so she unpacks those words in um, uh, in her work called the Way of Perfection, 
And as she unpacks those words, her, her purpose is to show how three different expressions of prayer kind of flow into each other and are ordered towards contemplative prayer or mental prayer or this conversation that I was just speaking about. And so the three expressions of the prayer that uh, she refers to that you find it also in the Catechism of the Catholic Church are vocal prayer, meditation, and finally contemplative prayer. And um, the beauty of our Catholic faith is that uh, uh, in our spiritual tradition, we have never gone beyond, uh, uh, and other religions consider us very primitive for this, but we've never gone beyond on the humble cry of, uh, of the heart, the humble cry of the son and daughter before the Father. And uh, in that humble cry of trust and confidence in Him, uh, she, as she unfolds His prayer, uh, helps us understand these words have meaning that are beyond what we can understand, and we enter into those great mysteries simply by saying them with faith. She says, uh, as she goes through this book, she opens up a meditation on all that the words actually mean, what the, the world of um, uh, the interior world, the innermost scene of Jesus' own heart is availed to us, and and so we can ponder that and receive it and let it form the way we think. And then finally, though, uh, as, uh, as she um, uh, brings her great work uh, to, to kind of an apex, it opens up this face-to-face, heart-to-heart encounter where with the ears of our heart, we, we hear God's voice, uh, blessing in our lives, mm. and um, and 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 with with the eyes of our heart, the eyes of faith, uh, we see, uh, behold His glory in a way that transforms us. And um, so, what does this mean practically? It means if we pray to our Father with due attention to the words we say, to who we are to be saying it, and who it is that we're addressing. Uh, the very heights of Christi- Christian sanctity are veiled to us. Grace pours into us. Yeah, that's beautiful. I uh, was reading one of your, your blogs from several years ago where you talk about uh, this this book and some of the things that you, you, you pull out of it from what she wrote. And one of the words that stuck out to me was you talked about authenticity, that she saw this prayer as a way to authenticity, that being the alignment of what we say with what we do. And what struck me so much about that was how um, the word authenticity, to be authentic, is a a really high value in the world right now. People, especially in the younger generations, want people to be authentic, their true selves. But clearly her understanding of the true self is different than maybe the secular world's understanding of kind of living, being true to yourself. How would you make that distinction? How would she define authenticity compared to maybe how the world might define it? In the world that we live in, uh, it's influenced by an idea that uh, we are um, we are the uh, not only the authors of our acts. I mean, Western civilization is always believed that how we use our own human agency, our own freedom in the world, kind of defines who we are. But um, uh, but in Western civilization, we've always understood that in the context of uh, we uh, uh, we exercise our freedom in uh, 
a world that we didn't create ourselves, but that we received. Uh, and uh, and so authenticity uh, for for Christian is uh, becoming uh, the gift that God created us to be. He, from before the foundation of the world, he saw us and pondered us and chose to summon us into existence. And when he chose to summon us into existence, uh, uh, and he is doing that right now while you're listening to this uh, uh, this radio show, what uh, the breath that you're taking, the heartbeat you have, it, it, you have it because God has willed it to be because he, he delights in your existence. It's, it's a treasure to him. And that's a pure gift to you. But at the same time, it's also a challenge. And, uh, and so the, the challenge of becoming the gift that God created us to be, um, uh, uh, this, is, this is the pathway Christian authenticity. It's very different from um, what goes on in the world where you kind of create yourself. And the self you create is, uh, is uh, uh, oftentimes dependent on what's expedient, convenient, uh, uh, what gives you uh, 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 power, prestige, or pleasure, and um, or popularity. If you if you're attaining those things with some uh, uh, emotive explosion, especially if you can if you can identify yourself as a victim in one way or another, in our culture, you become authentic and. And that false sense of victimhood and that, mm-hmm. and that false use of uh, emotions, it's disingenuous. We kind of know it, yeah. um, but God has called us to something better. Right, and she talks about how her encounter with Jesus uh, helped to really understand that saving gift that his, his heart pierced for us and that she encountered that love anew and was able to... Con- you know, have a mystical contemplation with that. So let's let's talk that uh, more about that after the break. This is Crescent in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak filling in for Al. We'll be right back. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Catholic family life is a liturgy. Liturgy is a word that means a public act of worship. And for Catholics, liturgy is an act of worship established by God and intended to heal the damage that sin does to our relationships with him and each other. For instance, the liturgy of the Eucharist is God's way of restoring communion with him and making communion with others possible. Well, when we bring that Eucharistic grace home by looking for little ways we can share Christ's sacrificial love with our family each day, we celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, the liturgy that helps God heal the damage sin tries to do in our homes, at the very root of human relationships. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the Liturgy of Domestic Church Life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace, and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. There is essentially one true priest, says the Catholic Catechism, and that is Jesus Christ. All others are his ministers, There is the common priesthood in which all of the baptized and confirmed faithful participate according to their vocation. Bishops and priests make up the ministerial priesthood, which is essentially at the service of the common or holy priesthood, the faithful. Jesus is the one unique mediator between God the Father and the faithful. 
With a single offering, he brought about salvation once and for all. Still, that sacrifice is made present through the celebration of the Mass. Christ is made present through the ministerial priesthood without diminishing the uniqueness of his own priesthood. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. We need your help. Hello, I'm Marianne Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak, filling in with Al. We're here with Dr. Anthony Lillis. He recently wrote a book called 30 Days with Teresa of Avila, and we're going to be celebrating her feast day uh, coming up on Sunday. And so we're talking about uh, her understanding of prayer and the role of contemplation. And so I'd like to, to jump in here a little bit about... She talks about the the heights of mystical contemplation and all of that being surrounded by, formed by, inspired by God's passionate, burning love for us. So help us understand, Dr. Lillis, the the difference between kind of normal contemplation, if you will, and maybe mystical contemplation. and, And how do we as just normal people, normal believers, kind of move towards encountering that burning heart of God? Well, the, the, the first thing uh, uh, to kind of con- contextualize this, and, and I love the way you phrase the question, Christian, uh, the Christian contemplative tradition, spiritual tradition, is, uh, has a very objective note to it. Uh, Louis Bouillet kind of pointed this out in his own reading of Teresa of Avila. 
that she never loses sight of God as totally other than us and the complete object of our contemplation. So that, and what what he means is that um, we we as Christians are not concerned about psychic states we might attain. We're not really preoccupied all that much by um, uh, uh, you know mastering a technique in prayer. You can, and you may attain psychic states, but those those results, even therapeutic results, really don't define the ultimate reason why we pray. The ultimate reason why we pray has to do with the goodness and the greatness of God Himself. And um, and as we turn our hearts to Him, He, uh, by the uh, uh, munificence of His sheer grace, allows us to enjoy His presence in deeper and ever more transformative ways. The, the goal of Christian prayer is to be transformed in the lot, uh, in in the presence of God, um, God, uh, uh, this presence of God, uh, Teresa of Avila, she calls it mystical wisdom, mystical wisdom, or contemplative prayer, or contemplation, or mystical contemplation. It's a contemplation of the mystery of Christ, which always involves the holy mysteries of sacrament, unto perfect unity with the greatest mystery, the mystery of the Holy Trinity. And uh, and so that's why we call it the mm. mystical life is in the catechism. Yeah, um, I, I think this is so important. And you ro- recently wrote an article for the St. Paul Center called Unmasking Popular Spiritualities, What Teresa of Avila Can Teach Us Today. And, and you dive into this article, this kind of idea of, of pop- popular meditation or popular mystical experiences compared to uh, what the Church would propose as the point and the object and the reality of contemplation. You had this line, you said, the winds of strange doctrines and religious myths, from centering prayer to Catholic mindfulness, need to be answered by her feminine genius in a reproposal of the Church's mystical tradition. How would you uh, unpack the distinctives between maybe what the world would offer as mindfulness or meditation or, you know, kind of the popular pop psych type stuff of going deep into yourself versus the way she understood uh, contemplation. You got at it a second ago in terms of Christ being the object of our contemplation, but could you unpack that a little further in light of what we're being kind of inundated with in the world? Sure. There's a, uh, it's wonderfully convenient for secularists and people who don't believe in God to reduce prayer to, um, some sort of therapeutic purpose. Um, uh, others look at it for uh, as a means to um, by which we can um, uh, uh, evolve the human species, and both of these fall so short of the reality of what uh, uh, prayer in the Christian tradition actually is. It's a face-to-face in um, through the obedience of faith uh, with a living God and. Um, uh, we know this uh, Teresa of Avila builds on an ancient tradition. You find it all the way back to King Irenaeus. King Irenaeus, everybody knows that uh, he, he said, the glory of God is man fully alive. A lot of people miss the last part of that. Uh, and the life of man is the vision of God. We, we become what we behold. And so when we see, when we behold the wonder of who God is, Divine life flows into our frail humanity, and this is what we mean by transformation. 
um, uh, we don't want to just receive some kind of uh, a mental relief from the sufferings of the present moment. We're not seeking so much just to still the disturbed mind that's burdened with, uh, you know, the anxieties and resentments of, of the moment. What we're about in Christian prayer is allowing the Father to communicate into our hearts a goodness that He has yearned to give us from before the foundation of the world. And when He does so, when we say yes to that goodness in our hearts, it unleashes a power in the world that makes all things new. We believe that contemplative prayer actually transforms the world when it is done with this kind of faith. The, the other kinds of practices that are a lot more popular, they're usually in, uh, in the form of some sort of self-improvement um, uh, a psychological uh, project that uh, in, in and of itself, you know, isn't always the worst thing in the world. You know, there are worse things that you can be doing, in other words. But it doesn't rise to the level of, uh, of mature freedom that we're called to as sons and daughters of God. Treats of Avila was all about us realizing that true freedom that we have when we make ourselves vulnerable to everything the Father wants to communicate into our hearts. And He always communicates it to us through the power of His Word uh, and the fire of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, uh, as we receive that blessing in us, we become more in the image and likeness of God and unveil that to the whole world. In particular, if anyone wants to really trace this out in the writings of Teresa of Avila, I'm always blessed to kind of follow the way she sees human. She doesn't spell it out for you. I really have to kind of go through and look, but the way she sees human freedom and uh, and, and the way it grows towards love, uh, uh, the ability to love when it love seems to be an utter impossibility, it gets more subtle, more delicate, and more powerful the higher one goes in this kind of prayer. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think the other distinctive would be how she connects uh, this transformation this kind of consuming fire of the Holy Spirit and the heart, uh, burning heart of Jesus Christ to the cross and to suffering Amen. and to participating yeah. into the divine life in all aspects of that it reminds me of Romans 8, you know, your co-heirs with Christ provided that you suffer with him. And you had this line in this, um, this article where he said, her spirituality is not about what one experiences, but what one becomes. And I think that's an also a critical piece in this because uh, the journey of transformation that she's articulating for us ha may have experiential elements, right? You might feel something, you might experience something, but it's not, the point is not the experience, nor is the end the experience. If it comes, great, but it's not kind of what we're looking for, not really even how we're judging if it's quote-unquote working. And again, that's such a radical, both the suffering and the kind of putting experiences in their proper place are such a radical difference from what the world offers us, which the world is saying, don't ever suffer and trust your experiences and put experience at maybe the highest level in your heart. Teresa's kind of saying, yeah, experiences are great, but not the main thing. And guess what? This transformation is going to lead in and through the cross. Well, what a powerful point. Cardinal Pell, when he, uh, one of the last talks he gave was at St. Patrick's Seminary here in Menlo Park, 
uh, and he, he we were, we asked him about his time in prison, and he talked about a great cultural battle between secularism and Christianity. He said, what defines the battle is the attitude towards suffering. Mm. In Teresa Davila, you find in her writing that this kind of prayer we're talking about, contemplative prayer, can actually transform what's going on while you're suffering and even facing and suffering death can transform that into an encounter with God that changes everything, that unleashes God's power into the world. And uh, for the, and so you're right, for the secularist, for the person who doesn't see anything beyond this world, who doesn't see this world has kind of ordered around the sacred, ordered around the cross, uh, 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 the worst thing that can happen to you is to suffer, <laughs> to be humiliated, right. to lose your riches, or to go to prison. Teresa of Avila opens up another avenue of contemplation that allows you to see the exigencies of this life as all part of a divine plan. And uh, and no matter what happens, we are awaited by God, and He His will, He's going to triumph. We have a reason for hope. Mm-hmm. Just a couple minutes left here. Uh, how would you recommend somebody beginning this road of contemplation. Okay, so we have a listener who's very inspired by Teresa, uh, says, yes, okay, I I want this type of transformation. I have no idea how to begin. What would you recommend? Well, um, uh, obviously, if somebody hasn't returned to the sacraments, uh, you know, confession and going to Mass as frequently as possible Mm -hmm. is the very first beginning I also recommend that um, you choose the time of day where you're going to spend a little bit of time with God. And if you don't spend any time right now, you might make it a very modest amount of time, something like 20 minutes, where and bring have the scriptures with you, and uh, and and uh, uh, and it, so it, you know what do I do? Well, uh, before you read the scriptures, make the sign of the cross. Think about what you're doing when you make that sign, mm. and put yourself in the presence of God, you know, by an act of faith. God, I know you're present to me. I know that you have something that you want to reveal to me today, that you want to communicate something beautiful into my heart. I don't need to understand it. I don't need to feel it, but I I need whatever it is you're going to give me. I need that daily bread. Mm. And then after, in the context of that act of faith, begin to read the scriptures, the Gospel of Mark, for example, or, or, or the Psalms. Mm-hmm. This will begin a beautiful conversation with the Lord. Amen. Well, thank you, Dr. Anthony Lillis. You can get more from him at his blog at beginningtopray.blogspot.com and check out his new book, 30 Days with Teresa of Avila. St. Teresa of Avila, pray for us, and Lord Jesus, help us to contemplate you and be more drawn into your heart. This is Crescent in the Afternoon. We'll be right back. Underwritten in part by this not-for-profit. Are you looking for peace? Longing for joy? Want to meet the giver of all goodness? God is calling the laity to bring Ignatian prayer into a suffering world. Work for the new evangelization. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Order your free digital training and manual. Find true happiness and everlasting joy. Go to LordTeachMeToPray.com and click on the red button today. It's free. Approved by the USCCB. 
Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. The world's eyes are in Israel following an attack by Hamas. How closely are you following the story? How much do you know about it? That's our question in this week's Poll of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Poll of the Week to let us know. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Father Benedict Rochelle. I must tell you that from what I observe from very young people, all of these blasphemers, all of these mockers are in for a tough time. Because the devil bites his own tail. And I find among young people a growing reverence and longing for God. I find a decline in the cynicism and skepticism around because it had to destroy itself. No one can live on being an enemy of God. It's too crazy. It's too absurd. It's too dark. It's too bleak. God is beautiful. God is holy. Why in the world mock God? The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Dr. Ray Garendi. When I've had enough. I ask parents, when do you decide to discipline? One of the most common answers is, when I've had enough. If discipline is designed to teach, then we need to discipline before we've had enough. We need to discipline because the behavior's wrong, not because emotionally it's pushed us to our edge. Besides, when you get to when you've had enough, you're much more likely to yell and scream and say things that you have to go to confession for. So, the suggestion is, discipline out of principle, not emotion. Principle means, because it needs discipline, and I'm going to do it when I'm calm. Emotion means, I'm going to be moved to do it just because I'm mad. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak, filling in for Al Cresta. 
The book of Revelation states that Satan has declared war on those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. For those who love our Lord Jesus Christ and strive to follow him, we must contend with a powerful enemy who is out to destroy us and everyone we love. The question is, are we, are you, prepared for this battle? To help us answer that question, we have with us right now Father Ken Geraci. Father Ken is with the Fathers of Mercy and ordained a priest in 2012, and he recently wrote a book called Spiritual Warfare and Divine Mercy, The Weapon for Our Times. Father Ken, welcome to Crested in the Afternoon. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate you having me on. No, I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. It's, it's, it's pretty intense right out of the gate. Here we have the evil one and the, uh, the demons and the spiritual war, all that stuff can be kind of overwhelming sometimes to think about, wait, we're in a battle. What does that look like? How are we to understand that? So, Father Ken, can you just give us the biblical understanding of what are we living in and what should be, we be aware of? And then we can talk about how divine mercy helps us get through it and conquer it. Yeah, well, I think just generically speaking, when we look at the whole of salvation history, it were the angels that fell first. And as they fall, they are cast down, and then they seduce Adam and Eve into sin, specifically Adam, who committed the original sin. And then as a result of the sin of Adam, we have concupiscence. We have that result of original sin that has affected all of us. And the devil, as we see in the garden, is constantly tempting us away from our relationship with God to cast suspicion on the eyes in our relationship with God. And so when we see this battle of temptation, this war, we recognize that Christ has won this victory on the cross. He won this victory for us, and we are fighting from victory. However, we are not victorious ourselves until we cross our own personal finish line. And so there's this constant battle in our own lives against sin, temptation, the world, um, all of those things that draws away from our relationship with God. And so whether it's something as simple as trying to resist screen time <laughs> all the way up to resisting moral sins, those are the fight that we're dealing with. Yeah, we're in a battle and it's, we're, you're going to lose battles if, you don't, if you're not aware you're in one. And That's one right. of the things that the scripture is full of is are these images and these very poignant uh, stories and allegories and then just direct teachings of we are not just contending with flesh and blood. In fact, St. Paul says in Ephesians 6, our, our battle is with the powers and the principalities, the rulers of this present darkness. There's a, a spiritual fight going on. And, you know, people, I think, are relatively familiar with the divine mercy message, but a lot of times what's lost within that message from St. Faustina is the utter seriousness and intensity by which Jesus revealed to her the consequences of sin and the, the just how seriously God takes um, rejecting him in disobedience to the fact, you know, she was brought to hell. And she, she has all these writings on how, in, how very serious this is. Can you help? I mean, because divine mercy is only kind of compelling so, insofar as we understand that we need mercy. Can you speak to kind of how... Um, maybe some of that therapeutic universalism that has crept into the church has almost watered down the divine mercy message and how serious this was to say Faustina to to paint the full picture. Well, I think uh, a priest friend of mine says it the best way. He says, nice people go to hell, repentant people go to heaven. Mm. And there's a recognition that being nice, being kind, is not nearly enough to gain our eternal salvation, but rather it's being first sorry for our sins and then cultivating that relationship with Christ 
by believing in his teachings and following him. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at the divine mercy message, it is our Lord crying out through the prophetess or, or through the, the woman who received these revelations, Sister Faustina, to call out to mankind to be sorry for their sins and to turn back to God. And even in the most slightest way, turning to him and saying, I need your help, opening your heart to him, just creating a crack in that door so he can come in. Yeah, and recognizing that his mercy is endless and always there for us. But to your point, we have to respond. We have to repent and believe in the gospel. And there's the very real possibility that we won't, or that people have the power to to say no to that mercy. How should we as, as Catholics kind of walk through our, our lives right now, recognizing both the kind of living in that beautiful tension of both desperately, desperately needing forgiveness, but also being desperately, desperately loved, kind of living in that understanding of we have nothing to give God, and yet he gives us everything we need to give back to him, that tension of of kind of mercy and judgment. Well, I, I think the words, again, to St. Faustina, when... She asked, she says, how can you forgive so many of my sins, the wretchedness of my soul? Our Lord said to her, he said, all of your sins, all of them, the entirety of all of your sins are like a raindrop that fall into the center of the ocean. And when that raindrop hits the water of the ocean, will you ever be able to find that one raindrop again? The answer is no. So for those of us who are sorry for our sins, truly, authentically, sincerely sorry for our sins, has done our best to confess those sins, you have nothing to worry about, but rather trust to thrust yourself and your misery upon God and allow him to console you and help you move forward. So it doesn't matter if there's abortions or murder or adultery or violation of vows in your past. God wants to forgive those, and if you've confessed them, then consider them forgiven, like that raindrop that has fallen in. And now it's time to heal and move forward and to avoid those things in the future. Father, what would you say to somebody who says, all right, Father, you're being a little intense, okay? Like hell, the devil, you know, spiritual warfare. Come on. Isn't that an antiquated, old-fashioned kind of old way of church thinking? Can't, can't Lighten up. We're good. You're good. I'm good. You know, mercy is, is endless. Just... This seems a little too intense. What would, what, how would you kind of help somebody have the scales fall from their eyes to, to see the reality of what we're living in? Well, there's two answers to that. There's what I would do to get the scales to fall from their eyes is I would develop, dedicate myself to a period of praying and fasting for that individual hmm. uh, because clearly they have not read the scriptures. Clearly they have no idea of the spiritual realities that are facing them. Um, my verbal response to that individual would be is let's open up the scriptures together and explore them and help me see your view versus what I'm seeing as my view. Mm-hmm. And if they're a sincere individual and open to that conversation, we could explore that together. Yeah, it's a beautiful answer because, again, going back to Ephesians 6, what does Paul say is the sword, our weapon? It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that the Word of God has the power to cut through bone and marrow. The Word of God has the power to to reveal the truth of who we really are, what we're made for, what we're up against, and where we're going. As as you've tried to lead people both into understanding and believing the message of divine mercy, but then also just believing and understanding the, the message of the scriptures, what have you found has been the most 
kind of compelling way to help somebody start to really believe what they read in the Word. You know, it's one thing to to hear it on Sunday. It's another thing to kind of see it cross-stitched on a pillow somewhere. But to have somebody actually enter the Word of God with belief and faith that leads to transformation, how, how have you helped people do that? You know, historically, I used to lead with my intellect, um, trying to talk people through things, show them resources. But what I've, what I've learned in this recent time is that it's, it's just if we let Jesus off leash, so to speak, quit trying to manage him and just let him go with the individual. <laughs> and so what I'm doing now, what I'm finding the most effective is simply praying with a person to sit through these situations and invite them into the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist and saying, take this issue we're talking about and just sit with him with the word of God or whatever resource it is that you're looking at and ask him, get in front of the Eucharist. If it's a non-Catholic, to thank God for the gift that this person is into my life, and then to invite them to pray at minimum a decade of the Divine Mercy Chaplet. Hmm. You know, when we pray that Chaplet of Divine Mercy, we see in that image that blood and water flowing from the side of Christ. And so when we pray even something as simple as just one single decade of the Chaplet, we allow ourselves to be washed with the water that flows from the side of Christ, but also the new life that comes with the blood of Christ. So I'm finding a whole lot more effectiveness by starting with uh, just being washed in the blood of the Lamb, so to speak, with another person and allowing God to do the greater amount of work. Yeah, I found it interesting, too, in my own own life that we, a lot of times we think that the message of judgment and therefore also the message of mercy is is too intense or is too extreme or is too kind of abhorrent or, or kind of scratchy to the modern ear. But I've actually found that it's almost like a breath of fresh air for people. A lot of times people receive this, the, an assessment of their condition, not as a judgment, but as like a, oh, finally somebody's speaking the truth about my condition. I knew I had some things in me that were messed up, and finally somebody's giving me a, a roadmap out of it. Instead of just kind of confirming me or affirming me in my path of life, somebody's calling me to, to something new. And so... Would you say that that's part of the reason why the, the, the message or the Chaplet of Divine Mercy is so effective, because it is so direct and it is so clear about what we need? Well, it, it points towards what true love is, mm. that God was willing to sacrifice for us when we were still sinners. And when we enter into that, having that willingness to suffer and sacrifice for another person is the greatest testament of love. I always tell people that the greatest words in marriage and family are not, I love you. The greatest words in marriage and family are, I forgive you. Mm. Because embedded in I forgive you is the message, I was and am willing to suffer for you. Wow. That is really good. Uh, I, I, <laughs> As a, a father of five with my wife, it's one of the things we've most tried to teach our kids how to do is to say, you know, I'm sorry, X, Y, and Z for what I've done. I, I, I intend not to do that again. And will you forgive me? Th- those those words carry so much power to your point of they, they reconcile, they, they leave no room for resentment. It's just, it's such a powerful thing that the Lord himself taught us to do and that we, we can now perpetuate. Um, the chaplet of divine mercy, how is that a weapon? This is what the entire book, uh, Spiritual Warfare and Divine Mercy, is built upon. This notion that the chaplet of mercy is an extension of the liturgy of the Eucharist. When we look at the main prayer, we're speaking to God the Father. It's the individual speaking, and you're doing an action, you're offering. 
So eternal father, I offer you what? The body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. For what reason? The atonement for our sins and those of the whole world. So where do we find the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus? This is the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the Mass. The Mass is the representation of Calvary. And so when you pray the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, mystically you enter into the Mass in the truest words of Vatican II of active participation. Mystically you enter into that Mass that is before the Father, Christ's one perfect offering on Calvary. And you are united through the hands of the priest, through the Eucharist, in the offering of Calvary to God the Father. And so when we pray the chaplet, my desire in this book is to to share this message far and wide of the power with which you are praying. Together you are sitting there at Calvary with the Blessed Virgin Mary, united in Christ's one perfect offering. That's amazing. Yeah, we have just a a minute or two left here. I'm wondering, do you have a story of how you've seen the chaplet transform a life? Well, I've seen many miracles associated with it, physical healings. I've prayed over an individual who's going in for a heart procedure. The doctor said he had a 5% chance of living, and I uh, came out squeaky clean. Uh, I have seen families converted, and even in my own life, I've watched myself just go from anywhere from struggling in my own personal prayer life to moving into this new era of deeper intimacy with God the Father. Hmm. Father, I wonder, with the 30 seconds we have left, could you just lead us in a prayer uh, to the the author of Divine Mercy that everyone listening right now might be equipped to fight this battle? Absolutely. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your sons and daughters, thanking you for the shed blood of your Son. Help us unite ourselves with him in the outpouring of the blood and water that has flowed from his side in his one perfect offering, not only for our salvation, but for our divine adoption so that together as one family, we may adore you in the most holy trinity for all eternity. Amen. Thank you, Father. This has been Father Ken Garassi. He wrote a book, Spiritual Warfare and Divine Mercy, The Weapon for Our Times. Such an important uh, message as we navigate living as disciples in a world that's fallen, where we have enemies, where there are forces that try to distract us, disrupt us, and keep us from living the way that Jesus intends and ultimately enjoying the fulfillment of all of our desire that is in heaven. So, author of Divine Mercy, Jesus, thank you so much, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. This is Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Barak, filling in for Al. We'll be right back. Can smelling certain scents improve our memories? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. When my wife and I had COVID in late 2020, we both lost our sense of taste and smell. In my case, I continued to have issues with my sniffer for a few months. Then I read a study that suggested smelling bold scents could help restore the connection between the nose and the brain. Sure enough, smelling fresh lemons every day seemed to help me recover. No wonder I love the aroma of lemons and incense. Another study, though, indicates that older folks who smelled fragrant essential oils got better sleep and improved memory and thinking. Brain scans confirm they got better. Be careful, though. Some essential oils can be harmful if inhaled over time. Always consult your doctor. Side note, from Genesis 2 to Revelation 18, there are more than 200 references to perfume, odor, and smell. For more on the study, look for our Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. We are given many gifts. Everyone is different. 
And yet when we embrace them, when we accept our gifts and use them as God wants them to be used, His will, not ours, those crosses turn into gifts from which we can learn, grow, and who knows, maybe have an entirely different life than what we planned. Such as the case with me, I never in a million years expected to be in Catholic Radio. Never even knew it existed. So the next time you're questioning or struggling, say, okay, God, what can I do with this? What am I supposed to do? Don't bury it. Don't put God in a box and see what he does with that gift, which sometimes comes in the shape of a cross. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Okay, that was our 4 o'clock hour with Dr. Anthony Lillis and Father Ken Garassi. We talked about St. Teresa of Avila and her feast day coming up and how she can help us understand what contemplation looks like and how we can enter into it. And then Father Ken, just beautiful conversation about the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, the message of Divine Mercy, and how we can live uh, united to the Lord with our eyes fixed on heaven recognizing that we need his mercy and the world desperately needs the weapon of divine mercy to fight the power of the evil one. Second hour is coming up in a few minutes. we got Peggy Stanton and others talking about the Synod at the end. Looking forward to the second hour. I'm Pete Burak, filling in for Al Cresta. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. See you in a minute. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for Conversations of Consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak, filling in for Al today. We had a great first hour, looking forward to a a wonderful second hour. We're going to be talking about, in a few minutes, with Peggy Stanton, this Sunday's upcoming gospel where Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, but none of the invited guests showed up. What are we to understand about this? How are we to to navigate this this difficult reading? There's a, a couple sections in this Sunday's gospel where uh, we have to kind of, in faith, submit to what Jesus is saying and, and seek his understanding as how are we supposed to understand this king who looks at one of the wedding guests and says, you're not wearing the right thing. You need to be thrown out of here. <laughs> we're going to talk about it with Peggy Stanton. And then we're going to be talking about uh, the synod on synodality with uh, Matthew Bunsen. How are we to navigate the reports coming out of Rome of some degree of transparency, some table groups are focusing on this, changes of protocol, what are we to do about it? And what we want to focus on with, with Matthew is not so much, well, some of the big picture things, but also just as everyday Catholics, what are we supposed to think about the church when she enters into a synod? And how does that impact us? And how does that impact us moving forward? 
We also found out today that the Latin Catholic patriarch in Jerusalem is calling for a day of prayer and fasting coming up uh, next week. There's more details that are going to be emerging over the next couple days, and we'd invite you to go to AveMariaRadio.net to stay up to date on how we can participate in this day of prayer and fasting. He is the He's responsible for the Latin Catholics in, in Israel and Palestine and Syria and a lot of the Middle Eastern countries there. And so he's calling, rightfully so, for us to pray and fast both for peace, for justice, and for um, yeah the Lord's will to be done as we just unite ourselves to the people there. And no better way to do that than to get down on our face and cry out for God's mercy, cry out for his justice, and cry out for the kingdom to reign and for peace to be restored. Um, Prayer and fasting next week. More details at AveMariaRadio.net. So to learn more about what's going on in the world, let's get the news with Dan McGraw. Thank you, Pete, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, October 13th. It's the Feast of St. Edward the Confessor. And today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. Israeli commando teams are conducting searches for weapons and hostages inside Gaza. The Israeli Defense Forces confirmed the action today ahead of an expected major ground assault involving thousands of troops and tanks. Israel has ordered one million civilians to leave northern Gaza to stay out of harm's way. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is in Qatar to discuss the Israeli-Hamas conflict with the country's prime minister. A cardinal from the Democratic Republic of Congo says the devil is launching attacks to divide the church, and we must fight back with the Holy Spirit. He made the remarks while celebrating Mass for the participants of the Synod in Rome. Matthew Bunsen joins us with more on the Synod later in this program. A man armed with a knife killed a teacher and seriously injured two other people at a school in northern France on Friday, an assault that French President Emmanuel Macron has described as an Islamic terror attack. Officials have provided few details about the assailant, and his motive was not immediately clear. A suspect was quickly arrested at the site, which includes a middle and high school. And future trips down to the Titanic are being canceled by a company whose director died in the implosion of the Titan submersible earlier this year. RMS Titanic Inc. had planned a 2024 voyage to the wreckage site with a plan to collect more artifacts, including the ship's famous wireless telegraph unit. The U.S. government has challenged the company in court, arguing the mission would violate federal law and a deal with Great Britain that the site be treated as a grave. From the AveMariaRadio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak filling in for Al Cresta today. Right now we're going to look at our upcoming Sunday Gospel where Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, but none of the invited guests showed up. Here to help us understand what's going on in this reading is Peggy Stanton. Peggy, welcome to Crescent in the Afternoon. Thank you, Pete. Welcome to you. Thank you. Yeah, it's fun to be in this chair. I mean, I've been in the other chair when you've interviewed me. I know. So it's fun to... <laughs> it's usually the re- reverse, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, this is, this is great. So, Peggy, I'm going to read the gospel, and then we can talk about it. Okay. This is a gospel from Matthew, chapter 22. Jesus again, in reply, spoke to the chief priests and elders of the people in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He 
dispatched his servants to summon the invited guests to the feast, but they refused to come. A second time he sent other servants, saying, Tell those invited, Behold, I have prepared my banquet. My calves and fattened cattle are killed, and everything is ready. Come to the feast. Some ignored the invitation and went away, one to his farm, another to his business. The, le- the rest laid hold of his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged and sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy to come. Go out, therefore, into the main roads and invite to the feast whomever you find. The servants went out into the streets and gathered all they found, good and bad alike, and the hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to to meet the guests, he saw a man there not dressed in a wedding garment. The king said to him, My friend, how is it that you came in here without a wedding garment? But he was reduced to silence. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind his hands and feet and cast him into the darkness outside, where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Many are invited, but few are chosen. Okay, Peggy Stanton, <laughs> where would you like to start? What what stands out to you initially in that reading? Well, I think um, <laughs> as, a, as a woman and a sometime chef in my kitchen, I'm thinking <laughs> with this constant going back and forth to get new guests, What's happening to the food? <laughs> mm, yeah, right. It's ready. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's been ready for hours now. <laughs> um, no, I think um, the, the catechism uh, doesn't say a lot about this particular gospel, except to, uh, to point out that um, the, the parables uh, are, are a secret uh, at the heart of the parables uh, is, the, is the secret identity of our Lord and, and uh, he, is the, he is really the, the bulk of what we're, we're ruminating on when we look at those parables and of course we're looking at the kingdom and, that, and the, the catechism points out and that um, the kingdom is not uh, just for the hereafter the kingdom is is in the present mm-hmm. and uh, I don't think we often think of that but think how often our Lord would say uh, the kingdom of God is at hand meaning him of course mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, obviously the king is God uh, the the people who refuse to come to the wedding feast are the rulers or the um, Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders who should have actually uh, recognized uh, Jesus as the son of David, uh, but they didn't. And um, the fact that uh, they go out and they gather... Um, all of the you know the good and the bad everybody they can find on the streets and bring them into the hall um, is also reminiscent you know of the uh, parables of the uh, the weed and the wheat mm-hmm. and of course the fishing net you know that pulls in all kinds of, of fish and um, um, but it um, also brings to mind that uh, someone arrives there without a wedding garment. 
and you say, well, um, and, and the, the king was very harsh, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> threw him right out, and uh, you know, and, and was cruel to him, and it seems a bit extreme, uh, but uh, obviously the most um, accepted view of what the wedding garment is is that it, you know, he's not clothed in righteousness. Mm-hmm. And goodness, and, but there, but I what I want to share with you is what I found in uh, the Magnificat. I don't know if you uh, use the Magnificat, uh, Pete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, not not as often as I should. I, I I I have one, and I I have to admit sometimes it gets buried in the bottom of my bag. But I I, <laughs> I love it, and it is an incredible resource. Yeah, and it's well. It's um, if you go to daily mass, it really is wonderful because it, it has all the daily readings and then has a reflection on those readings. And this reflection uh, that is for this Sunday's gospel, I found so unique that if you don't mind, I'd like to just read it in its entirety to you. Yeah, let's do it. Um, it, because it, it's it's different. I, it's something I frankly had never thought of, um, and I don't think a lot of people would think of uh, when you're talking about the wedding gar- missing wedding garment. Um, it says, when it describes the king coming into his banquet hall, eager to take delight in his guests, our text is evoking one of the most central and moving of biblical themes. God's search for man, in particular for the face of man. We are perhaps more accustomed to expressions of man's impassioned search for God, but we often forget that our instinct for God was put in us by God himself in the beginning, desirous as he was for our love. We would not be looking for God, as St. Augustine superbly exclaims, unless God had already found us. His desire for us incessantly generates ours for him. This is why our love will never be disappointed, since its very existence already contains a sure promise of fulfillment. Truly, if our heart is ardently seeking the face of God, The watermark we will discern under the text of every page of scripture is these words of the divine bridegroom as he in turn searches for our countenance, which unaccountably seems to enthrall him. And this is the quote from scripture. My dove hiding in the clefts of the rock, in the coverts of the cliff, show me your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Mm. In us, reclining at his wedding banquet, the Father comes looking for the face of his eternal word that he etched into our souls at the creation, at our creation. The Christ likeness that we put on like a garment at our baptism. He comes looking for the image of his beloved Son on our faces in order to contemplate in a fresh location, so to speak, the beauty that so enchants his heart. In yet another incarnation, which is ours, yet another variation that will confirm him once again 
in his never-ending yet ever-new experience of his son's inexhaustible loveliness, splendor, and humble grandeur. In the most real and emphatic way, we Christians are called by the Father to impersonate Christ, that is, to allow the full reality of the person of the Word, along with all his virtues, to permeate and vivify every cell of our being, so that at length our hearts become the heart of Christ, perceiving, thinking, and loving with all the wisdom, strength, and magnificence of Christ. Only such impersonation of the divine lover, because it is most intimate communion with the source of our being, will paradoxically bring our own deepest, most original, and genuine selves. Hmm. What do you think of that? Wow, there's a, a lot we could unpack there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah isn't extremely it? Extremely well said. Yeah, I, I, a couple of things that stood out to me was this idea of baptism. Through baptism, you know, we are brought from out from under a curse, that mm-hmm. being sin, the wages of sin mm-hmm. is death. Right. The new, that we are a new creation in Christ. St. Paul actually right. talks about put on mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. But even at a baptism, which, yeah. you know, I have, our youngest is 16 months old, so we celebrated mm-hmm. a baptism about a year and a mm-hmm. half ago. And one of the moments is a new garment is put on the child. Right. And yeah. it, it's it's symbolic of mm-hmm. you have now been clothed with Christ. Mm-hmm. And so within this parable, we see being clothed with Christ is to be properly attired to enter into the banquet of the Father. Right, right. But I was so intrigued by uh, the lines, I guess maybe because I'm an artist, uh, um, that the face of Christ, mm. that he's looking for uh, the face of Christ on our face, so to mm. speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the reflection of his son uh, right. In, right. Our, in our countenance. Yeah. You know, and it, it, I think one of the things that's important about this reading, like so many of these where, you know, Jesus meek and mild seems pretty intense here. Yeah, and, right. And I think that it's, it's helpful to, to remind everyone to, to kind of submit in faith to what is being said in the scripture and then to dive into the richness of what Jesus is saying so that we can mm. be confronted with it. it. Like if this is yeah. startling to us, yeah. well then good. Like it should jolt us into saying, okay, what is the Lord revealing to us about our mm-hmm. condition and what he has in store for us, which as you just read, what he has in store for us is complete transformation into him. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that, that is really something that you have to ponder long and hard about right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i don't I, I don't think people realize what you, well, you've heard the phrase you know that we are to become uh divine like not mm-hmm. i mean n- none of us of course can ever become god there's only one god but we can become god like i mean we, he right. is we're, we're supposed to be children of god so, uh, but we are also to be other Christ. Yes, yes, amen. Well, this reading, thank you, Peggy. We can look forward to hearing it and being transformed by it on Sunday. Thank you for your insight, and thank you for joining us on Cresta in the afternoon. I'm Pete Burak filling in for Al. We'll be back in a few minutes.
The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I told him about the woman who came to me and said her two children hadn't spoken to each other for two years. Their grandma died and she was very wealthy. She left half to each one. She said they're arguing over a commode. She said it's inlaid. Can you imagine being in hell? And somebody saying to you, what are you here for? EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. The world's eyes are in Israel, following an attack by Hamas. How closely are you following the story? How much do you know about it? That's our question in this week's Poll of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Poll of the Week to let us know. How do we listen to God? Contrary to popular opinion that God only speaks to the privileged few, the Catholic Catechism tells us He communicates to all of us through our conscience. On our hearts, in our most secret core, God has inscribed the moral law. This law calls man to live and to do what is good and avoid evil. In the aloneness of the sanctuary that is our conscience, our Creator's voice echoes in our depths. When he listens to his conscience, says the Catechism, the prudent man can hear God speaking. Conscience is a judgment of reason, whereby the human person recognizes the moral quality of a concrete act about to be performed, is already performing, or has already been performed. John Henry Cardinal Newman defined conscience as the law of the mind whereby God speaks to us behind a veil. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. You and your spouse are invited to cruise with Royal Caribbean this January, along with Father Michael Schmidt, Archbishop Nauman, Al, Teresa, Dr. Ray, and many others. Get away with your spouse on a fun, relaxing, and rejuvenating cruise with inspiring speakers, daily mass, and endless memorable experiences. Father Michael Schmidt's comments, you'll encounter an amazing community of couples and speakers, and most importantly, you'll encounter Christ. More details at AveMariaRadio.net. Just click the travel link. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic Law School in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. 
www.thepeopleshow.org. And welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak, filling in for Al today. The Synod on Synodality is well underway, and it's an opportunity for us to take a look at what's going over in Rome and what we should think about it. And we're here with Matthew Bunsen. Matthew, welcome to Crescent in the Afternoon. Very good to be with you. Well, I know the listeners of Crescent in the Afternoon are pretty well informed, and they're paying attention to what things yes, you know things are going on in the church. And I'm sure they've heard about the Synod already. But Matthew, could you just give a, a quick kind of understanding of when we say synod on synodality, what are we talking about? Well, that's a very fair question. I think it, it, it's helpful to preface almost any discussion about the synod uh, with uh, at least some recap of what all of this is. So, so the synod on synodality is officially the 16th Ordinary General Assembly of the Synod of Bishops. That dates all the way back to the Synod of Bishops to 1965. It was created by Pope St. Paul VI. It's been meeting every few years ever since, and this is the 16th one. Pope Francis, uh, back in 2018 or so, uh, designated uh, that this theme for the Ordinary Synod was going to be on synodality, and that, of course, has opened up an entire, uh, almost whole-scale business of trying to discern what exactly synodality is. And Pope Francis himself has described it as a, a journeying together. The name itself uh, traditionally is interpreted as synhodos from the Greek, meaning to travel together. And so Pope Francis sees this now as one of the great pillars of his pontificate, this idea of a church that listens, a church that discerns, and all of that uh, is supposed to be happening uh, in this synod on synodality. And it is Pope Francis's personal project. It is a major undertaking for him, and we can see the importance of it uh, really over the last years. So it's it's an experiment or a project of trying to get, as I understand it, the Pope trying to get the entire Church to weigh in on the Church, <laughs> to to look yes. at the various <laughs> aspects of who we are, and and actually, in in the whole listening process and all the listening sessions that were supposed to happen throughout all the various dioceses around the world, there was a expectation and a hope that not only would Church members weigh in, but all everyone would have a chance to speak into the various topics that were put before them. In your opinion, Matthew, does this, how does this square with just kind of how the Church has traditional, traditionally seen herself within kind of her role within the world? Yeah, that's, that's uh, I think, a, a key question to this whole process. Uh, Pope Francis, in some ways, has defined the Synod by helping us to define what it's not. And what it is not, according to Pope Francis, is a parliament where things are up for a vote and there's no majority rules. We, All of us, I think, who followed it have had more than enough of that with the, the German synodal way uh, in which they quite literally have put uh, the teachings of the Church up for a vote uh, and, of course, quite predictably, uh, decided uh, to demand wholesale changes to church teaching on, on a number of key areas. Pope Francis has been very clear, and the organizer of the Synod have been very clear that this is not supposed to be about changing doctrine. Having said that, there are those who are taking part in this very Synod, in the very Synod Hall, uh, who would like to have that happen. All of that is important, because Pope Francis has tied this closely to evangelization. 
uh, to how the Church reaches out. If we go back to the very start of his pontificate uh, in 2013, what is he called for? A Church that goes out, uh, a Church that reaches out to the peripheria, as he puts it, the peripheries, to those who are forgotten, those who are marginalized. And I think he sees uh, the concept of synodality as tying closely into that, of reaching out, of listening, uh, but being a welcoming place for everyone. Now, it raises a lot of logistical questions. It raises uh, some theological questions. But uh, as I said, this for Francis is everything right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the images the, the Holy Father has used to describe synodality pretty consistently is the road to Emmaus and highlighting Jesus coming alongside two disciples who were moving in the wrong direction and uh, walking with them and asking them questions. But what's interesting, often when the Holy Father describes this this moment in Scripture, it kind of, I've seen him kind of stop there, of he comes alongside and walks with and talks with the disciples, but doesn't kind of close the loop of then explains the Scriptures to them and then reveals himself in the breaking of the bread, and then they turn back. I wonder, how, how are we to understand this idea of, of being a welcoming church, a listening church, with also the the missionary mandate to to go make disciples, to proclaim something in such a way with such a fervor that the expectation is that somebody would change their mind, that they would believe, that there would be a metanoia conversion moment. Right. Well, I mean, and that's uh, one of the concerns that uh, has been raised uh, over these years, as we have uh, seen many, in, in certainly from the, the Holy See side, uh, and, and many bishops across the United States, across the world, struggle in some ways to articulate in very clear terms what we mean by synodality. There is most definitely the aspect of listening, of accompaniment, uh, which is one of those key words for this pontificate. And for, for Francis, I think he sees this as an invitation to borrow, in fact, a very word from Pope Benedict XVI, uh, that we need through our lives to invite people into this encounter with Jesus Christ. I think we've seen in the last months um, an effort on the part of Pope Francis. Uh, I certainly saw it uh, firsthand uh, during World Youth Day in Portugal, where Pope Francis uh, was, I think, even more clear about what he's hoping, and that is that this encounter, through accompaniment, uh, through pastoral care, does spark uh, the transformation that you're talking about. Now, uh, there is this crisis that we have in Germany with the German Synodal Way uh, that is creating havoc, I think, in the interpretation of Francis's vision of synodality, because they're seen at times to be competing versions, uh, even among the bishops, even apparently within the Synodal Hall itself. Yeah, and I guess, help us understand why this is a big deal as Catholics, in the sense of what what's the hard? What if somebody were to say to you, "Well, Matthew, what's the big deal? Well, isn't it good to hear from people? Isn't it helpful to get everyone's perspective?" And and maybe this is just the way the Holy Spirit is helping us kind of develop doctrine. I mean, as Catholics, we we think differently about doctrine than just either it being a you know a, a, a consensus opinion, and we certainly doesn't want to be swayed by just the the fad of the day. So how do, how is as as a Catholic listening to this? Why should I care deeply that this not be the way forward, or a proper understanding of this is is important. Yeah, I, I think uh, as we have watched the, the 
the Senate itself unfold. Uh, and as the, the Senate itself has progressed uh, in these, well, it started about a week ago uh, with the opening mass. And as uh, I think the best way to describe it is the one that was given even today uh, by the Relator General, and that uh, is the Cardinal who's appointed by the Holy Father to shepherd this process, and that is uh, the Jesuit uh, Archbishop of Luxembourg, Jean-Claude Cardinal Hollerich, uh, who himself has sparked some controversy uh, over the last years by expressing a certain willingness to adapt, as he put it, to some of the better understanding of the social sciences, especially as they relate to human sexuality. So having said that, uh, he has been charged with the task of guiding this whole process. And for him, he's, he asked a series of questions today, and he said, do we feel enriched or threatened when we share our common mission? Uh, and he was speaking especially on the role of women. And so he sees this as an opportunity to have this discussion about certain key questions that we are facing as a church. One of them that the Pope Francis has raised, Pope John Paul II had a magnificent meditation on women, in Mulieres Dignitatum. And, and Pope Francis has broadened, for example, the, the roles and participation of women, certainly in Vatican offices uh, and in the, the Roman Curia. Uh, so what I think what we're seeing is that this is a potentially big deal in the most positive sense. If we, if we look at the stated objective, uh, and that is, uh, again, a church that listens, uh, a church that also recognizes that everyone has a, a part to play. Now, we have to have very clear understanding of what those individual roles are. Uh, and that, I think, is one of the concerns that some people have, uh, that coming out of this, there might be confusion for that, because let's remember, we have another entire year ahead of us before the second part of this very synod takes place in October of 2024. Yeah, which I guess begs the question is, how does the, the people of God navigate what's going on in Rome over the next year and a half without kind of getting uh, synod fatigue, if you will, of, of how do we kind of keep our eye on it in a way that is informative and keeps us up to date as to what's happening without kind of just shrugging our shoulders and saying, well, at the end of this process, something will come out of Rome and it'll impact something. Is there a way at which you would recommend kind of the, the everyday listener navigate these waters, and we're going to come back at after the break to talk a little bit more about what's actually been going on in the discussion, but what, yeah. what would you say to somebody who's just saying, okay, I want to be informed, I want to, I mean, keep listening to Ave Maria Radio, obviously, but I want to be informed, but I don't want to be overwhelmed by this. Yeah, I think the, the place to go would be uh, ncregister.com, and I say that that's the, the landing page for the National Catholic Register. Um, up uh, in the upper left side is a tab called Synod on Synodality. And what that does is bring together all of the articles uh, from the Catholic News Agency, from the National Catholic Register. Uh, we've put all of it in one place, and you can scroll for, for days uh, looking at our coverage. And that, I think, would be a good place just if you want to dip in and out uh, to see what's happening every day. Mm-hmm. In... Help us understand what is happening every day. How is the synod organized? What what is the the protocol by which they're they're navigating these conversations? Yeah, so there is a very clear methodology. In fact, uh, it's a, a document called the Regolamento, which is uh, the regulations that govern this. 
And the way that this uh, particular synod has been organized is a little different from uh, some of the ones in the past. And it starts with uh, the question of the small table. All synods have had what are called the Trucoli Minori, which are small groups, usually broken down into languages. And they've changed this methodology in a way because of you've seen any of the photos, I know you have, Mm -hmm. there are 30 or so uh, tables where the 364 different delegates have been uh, signed different tables uh, according to different language groups. Mm -hmm. And there's uh, something to that that we can pick up after the break. Yeah, so let's let's hold that thought because I want to talk about what's significant about how they've chosen to organize these groups in light of the various topics. I think there's something that we can learn from that and something we can keep an eye on and kind of have our ear to the ground as to, okay, both what is the Holy Spirit doing and what are the various leaders of the church trying to accomplish here? We'll be back with Crested in the Afternoon right after this. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. It's not over. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. I'm Marianne Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Our messages feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy assistance. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. Please find us at prolifeacrossamerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Father Benedict Groeschel. Oh, I love reverence. Wherever I go in the world, I usually go to visit the religious buildings. And no matter what I see, I see reverence. Awe. I've been in temples and mosques where I saw more reverence and awe of God than I see in Christian churches, even sometimes in Catholic churches. Oh, yes. Let me say it. When I was a boy, Catholics were much more reverent and respectful in church. You never, ever spoke in church. I was a young priest. A man had a heart attack at the beginning of Mass. I stopped the Mass. We prayed for the man while the police were coming, the ambulance. They removed him from the church. He didn't die. Not one word was spoken. The police officers and the ambulance attendants who came 
whispered respect. I wish it were true today. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. I tell oftentimes an experience that I had at Divine Child when I was a young priest, one year ordained, first time I ever really saw the power of the Blessed Sacrament. And we simply exposed the Blessed Sacrament at the end of Mass one night. I encouraged people. I said, you know what? We've been in the habit of praying over people after Mass. I said, we're not going to do that this week. I'm just going to invite people to come on up and pray if they want to pray. And I put the Blessed Sacrament on the altar. I kneel down. As I kneel down, the church is in the sanctuary. The whole church. And as I'm looking at this, and I'm looking at the people there, and I'm looking at Jesus under the appearance of bread there, I saw the Lord standing on the altar. And he's just standing there looking out at all the people. And then at a certain point, he turned towards me, and he just bowed. And he says, don't you see how easy this is? You don't have to do anything. You just have to put me out. You put me out, and I will work. And welcome back to Crescent in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak, filling in for Al today. I'm here with Matthew Bunsen. Before the break, we were talking about the Synod on Synodality, and we had landed on some of the structures that are unique to this Synod. We have 364 delegates meeting over the next several weeks in Rome to talk about all sorts of different topics. And I want to get into the topics with you now, Matthew, but first let's close the thought on this is a little different. Normally, in every synod, they've had these these small group discussions around these these table discussions, but this time they organized it a little differently. How so? Well, they still have the language groups, uh, but what they've done now is to assign different members uh, to take part in what are very thematic discussions. Uh, so, for example, this week uh, and part of next, uh, the Senate is going to be focusing on some of the key issues uh, related to church life. And those include some of the major hot-button issues, such as uh, outreach to the so-called LGBTQ community uh, and uh, even just the contentious question of uh, some sort of a diaconate for women. Now, again, we keep receiving assurances from everyone that uh, the intent is not to change church doctrine, uh, but for everyone to be heard. Now, what's different this time is that some of the participants have been assigned to small groups discussing specifically these hot-button issues, and that was based on the fact that uh, various participants were canvassed ahead of time about the topics that they consider to be most important. Now, for example, uh, Father James Martin, Jesuit priest, who I think is well known to uh, this audience, uh, who's a very controversial figure because of his advocacy for LGBTQ issues, is certainly one of the people who was signaling his intent and desire to speak about the LGBTQ issues at this Senate, and sure enough, he was clearly assigned uh, to one of those tables. Uh, we've been able to follow that with the reporting of uh, Edward Penton uh, with the National Catholic Register. So the question then is, <clears throat> is this a dynamic in which you have these small groups discussing these hot-button issues with people who are already committed in one sense to a cause? So is that going to skew or influence the different reports that each table gives? And in turn, is that going to influence or really shape uh, 
the finalized document, the synthesis document, as it's called, that to be presented at the end of this Senate. There's not going to be anything that would be binding or anything like that coming out of this, but clearly this will set the table uh, for the discussions over the next year. Yeah, it's it's an interesting, almost like stacking the deck scenario, if you look at it from one angle, is to say, okay, the people who coming into the Synod would like to talk about certain topics are organized around those topics. So it's not a huge stretch to think, well, if I... If you're if you want to talk about a particular topic, then you are coming with some angle or some uh, aspect of how you'd like it to be presented both to the church and to the Holy Father at the end of this process. It and it also begs the question of how will everyone have an opportunity to weigh in on the full variety of topics? Because there's right. a lot of different topics. The hot button ones are getting all the press, but there's some other really important things in there that different bishops may say, yeah, I. I really do want to weigh in on the women diaconate, but I really care about this other thing that deals with my diocese more explicitly, and I, I need—how do I choose each one? So is there a mechanism by which the the whole synod, all the synod participants, will be able to at least speak into each of the topics? Yes. Uh, so one of the things that uh, the, the, the way that this has been structured is, uh, for example, we have— the names of some of the participants at the, the one of some of the more controversial tables. Uh, and we know that there are voices uh, for very clear teachings on the life of the church and especially in areas of human sexuality and other things. So we know that in the, even in these small group discussions, and they keep stressing that this is, these are discussions, not debates, that Orthodox views are being heard. In addition, uh, one of the things that the Synod organizers have been really stressing is that everyone uh, will still be able to contribute on any of the themes. Hmm. Uh, so, for example, they have uh, a period in each of these days for free interventions. Uh, and so that somebody who wasn't necessarily assigned to a particular theme like humanism or immigration or world migration uh, or family life, which is one of the huge concerns for the African participants, Mm-hmm. that they will be able still to weigh in and comment on the various other tables and, and issues. In addition, uh, the committee that's working on trying to pull the synthesis together still has to pass it by a majority vote, and everything still has to be submitted for a two-thirds vote uh, on the final synthesis document with what I'm sure will be many, many amendments. Now, the one thing that does raise some concerns is that, as we saw in the Amazonian Synod, for example, even those items that did not receive the traditional two-thirds majority and therefore should not have been included in the final document were left in the document. And those included uh, several of those major issues, such as the uh, women from the diaconate uh, and the ordination of so-called very pro-body or tested men, married men, uh, to the priesthood under certain pastoral circumstances and need in the Amazonian region. So there's some concern that even if uh, these issues and these themes are necessarily supported by two-thirds, that they may still find their way into the document and be perpetuated for discussion uh, throughout the year heading into the Senate next year. Yeah, one of the things that's been interesting about uh, how these table groups are organized is both the combination of the things you just said, but then also it seems like the synod organizers' um, unwillingness to publicly release who's been assigned to each themes. And 
this has been a, a topic of discussion of how much of the synod discussion should be public and how much should be private, how transparent the discussions are and how, you know, you know behind closed doors, there was a whole big discussion as to whether or not all the participants were going to be kind of sworn to secrecy, if you will, coming out of it. And, yes. and th- so there's been a, a lot of back and forth on that. I'm curious as to what your perspective is on that, because I'm framing this question from a standpoint of the Church is often accused of being secretive, confusing, not transparent. And right. But coming out of a process leading up to this that was designed to be as listening and transparent as possible, it feels a little ironic to me that the, the big moment of this process is behind closed doors. But maybe, maybe I'm missing something here, or how, sh- how should we think about that? Right. Well, you're asking a question that uh, many people have been. Um, heading into this, uh, one of the huge questions uh, that were being asked of the Senate organizers was, all right, what exactly is the methodology going to be, and how transparent, how much access are we going to have to the speeches? Traditionally, and this goes back from, to the very beginning of the, the Senate of Bishops, it was always customary, and you could read it uh, in, in a different era in something like Servitore Romano, uh, the Vatican newspaper, which would publish every intervention that was given by every bishop. Wow. And now, of course, we have lay participants, we have men and women religious participating, which many see as a, as a really good thing. At the same time, uh, they have indicated that under no circumstances uh, are those interventions going to be released. Now, they are going to be housed somewhere, and, and given uh, the news that came out just the, yesterday about the, the apparent breach of security, hmm. it's distinctly possible that a lot of this is going to be released, whether they wanted to or not, uh, which would be a crime. Uh, but it, it indicates that there is a real desire on the part of the Senate organizers to keep the discussions private and confidential. The participants were asked, and this is in the regulations that I mentioned uh, at the start of our conversation, uh, to maintain uh, discretion and confidentiality, not just about what the interventions were saying, what other people were saying, but what they said, and the request for that is supposed to extend essentially forever. Uh, So they are not supposed to talk about what was discussed uh, in, in any particulars, even after the Synod concludes. It does not rise uh, to the level of what we had in one or two other Synods, which is a pontifical secret, which adds added weight. Mm-hmm. And we know that, uh, as uh, Paolo Ruffini, the, the head of the Dicastro Communications, joked, uh, that the, the Synod police aren't going to come and arrest you if you talk too much. But they are asking that uh, the discussions uh, not be made public. Now, the the stated reason for that is that this is supposed to be a process of listening and discernment and prayer. So that the pattern for these discussions is that uh, one person will give their intervention, the others will listen, everyone will reflect on it, everyone will pray on it, and then they might have a response to it. So in some ways, that's a difficult process to document. Um, but it requires a lot of time and patience, which is one of the reasons why they have each table has been given a facilitator, somebody who can help guide the discussion. So, again, it's a very different way of approaching this, but many have asked why we don't have greater transparency in what's actually being said in the Senate hall. The issues like the LGBTQ inclusion and the 
opening potential of opening the diaconate to the women and kind of the hot button topics are getting a lot of the press and a lot of the attention and, and justifiably so. But what are some of the other topics that are maybe further down on the agenda that you think are very significant, both for everyday Catholics, but the direction of the church moving forward? Yeah, uh we're seeing already uh, some concern on the part, for example, of the African bishops. Uh, they have stated very clearly what their priorities are, uh, and they're coming into this. Uh, they, they enumerated several. At the top of their list, uh, interestingly enough, for the African bishops is, let's not change church teaching. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're very clear about that. Just below that, though, for them is family life. As you know, the the church in Africa, because African culture itself is very family-oriented, so they are coming into this with deep concerns uh, about uh, the threats to the family through things like ideological colonization that we see, in which aid and development from the West are attached uh, to the embrace of abortion, contraception, the whole, what Pope Francis called gender ideology. We have a number of bishops who are here expressing grave concerns about the threats to the religious freedom around the world. The persecution of Christians, which we see everywhere uh, globally now, but also concerns about overall the, the right to worship, the right to have freedom of religion, and, and from China all the way into Latin America now, because you have regimes like Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. Other concerns are also ecological. Uh, that uh, in Africa, for example, there are major concerns also about the impact of development, especially from the West and the impact it's having ecologically. We just had Pope Francis issue a new apostolic exhortation on the environment. So that actually is, is a topic of some concern. And then we have uh, the topic of mass migration, which is a big concern for Pope Francis, but it's also uh, a major issue for many, many of the delegates because they themselves are dealing with the issues of mass migration, not just in Europe, but across Africa, at any given moment, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people are on the move uh, because of economic problems, because of ecological disasters, and of course because of political and and military strife. Mm. Well, Matthew, this has uh, been incredibly informative. Once again, can you give the listeners a, a place they can go to stay informed on all things dealing with the synod on yeah. synodality? Definitely go to EWTNnews.com or ncregister.com. It's great to be with you, and let's keep all of the Senate participants in our prayers. Amen to that. Matthew Bunsen, thank you so much for being on Crescent in the Afternoon, talking on the Synod on Synodality. And let's end on that note as we think about the Synod. Let's just pray. Let's pray and fast that the Holy Spirit would move, that the delegates would be receptive to the Holy Spirit, and that the Church would continue to be guided by the Lord. I'm Pete Burak, filling in for Al Cresta. This is Crescent in the Afternoon. Can smelling certain scents improve our memories? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. When my wife and I had COVID in late 2020, we both lost our sense of taste and smell. In my case, I continued to have issues with my sniffer for a few months. Then I read a study that suggested smelling bold scents could help restore the connection between the nose and the brain. Sure enough, smelling fresh lemons every day seemed to help me recover. No wonder I love the aroma of lemons and incense. Another study, though, indicates that older folks who smelled fragrant essential oils got better sleep and improved memory and thinking. Brain scans confirm they got better. Be careful, though. Some essential oils can be harmful if inhaled over time. Always consult your doctor. 
Side note, from Genesis 2 to Revelation 18, there are more than 200 references to perfume, odor, and smell. For more on the study, look for our Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. We get what we look for. St. Therese of Lisieux has an interesting insight on this. Once in a discussion over the possibility of avoiding purgatory, the future saint told another member of her community, Sister Maria Fabronia, that God was more father than judge. And in this discussion, debate, she finally took the liberty of saying to the other sister, If you look for the justice of God, you will get it. The soul will receive from God exactly what she desires. Are we full of wounds and anger and hurt, and do we want to inflict that on other people? Are we allowing God to heal us? If we receive his mercy, we have to show it to others. The Beatitudes are the heart of Jesus' message. Let's be transformed by them. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak. I've been filling in for Al today. It's been fun. We had a great show. I enjoyed each of the conversations, and I hope you were inspired by various aspects of what we what we focused on. I'm, I really want to invite you, especially as it pertains to Sunday's reading, of what is Jesus revealing to us about what is necessary for salvation, and how in faith and joy can we submit ourselves to what he's showing us and see him as a good, loving, and just judge, but be excited by that because he's inviting us into his life. He's inviting us into a wedding feast without end and that we might be clothed with him, clothed with his power, and clothed with his life. This has been Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak, filling in for Al. Thank you so much. God bless. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A, radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.